Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. To all who shall see these presents, greetings. On behalf of the Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Crew Lex Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast. Our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Nate Janikin, Operations Officer at the Kulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We will also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who could not join us today. So we ask that you keep your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. At the conclusion of our discussion, we'll have a question and answer session. So if you have a question, just type it in the ch group chat and I'll go through them in the order received. So in the world of Formula One, the phrase is cash is king. Nothing in life is free is a common saying. It's likely that many children have heard their parents say money doesn't grow on trees or the various cultural idioms of the similar vein. These aren't just facts for F1 teams that started preseason testing this week or a younger Kiwi trying to rent Super Nintendo games from Blockbuster. Terrorist organizations also require money to fund and carry out their campaigns that focus, and that's our focus of our conversation with our guest today. So we're welcoming back Dr. Christopher Harmon. He's a distinguished fellow of the Brute Kulak Center and served for many years as a professor uh, or academic chair at Marine Corps University. He's now a professor at the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C., teaching courses on terrorism, Maoist revolutionary wars, and military strategy. Dr. Harmon wrote or edited six books on terrorism, including The Citizen's Guide to Terrorism and Counterterrorism in its second edition in 2021. He's lectured widely as at the Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies and Interpol headquarters in Lyon, France. Dr. Harmon will address the remarkable and diverse ways that terrorists have financed their operations and then point out some of the economic tools states are using to fight back. Sir, welcome back uh, to the broadcast, uh, multi-time host at this point, uh, and I'll go ahead and turn the floor over to you. Well, thank you, Major, and it's always a pleasure to uh, work with the uh, Root Krulak Center. Uh, uh, the subject today is is really interesting, and, and here's a glance back into the recent past to show how intriguing these patterns are. So the Palestine Liberation Organization of Mr. Yasser Arafat and others was established by the late 1960s. Two decades on, a British journalist, James Adams, wrote a good book, the first widely recognized book on terror financing called The Financing of Terrorism. And he needed two chapters to cover all the PLO material he had. He describes PLO organization and offices in a downtown Damascus, Syria uh, scenario in one moment. Uh, he shows us a kind of nondescript five-story building. The first floor is pretty dirty. Uh, on the second floor up, kind of more grunge, but also a modest office for a director. Uh, the usual stuff, not pretty. Uh, and then a man with the PLO Executive Committee, a very powerful body, takes this visitor up to the fourth floor and to a locked steel door, and that gives on to stairs up and the top floor. And then here's the account that follows by the journalist. Behind this barrier lies a different world, a world of high-tech, state-of-the-art computers light years away from the CD floors below, and even further removed from the popular image of the PLO terrorist. 
air conditioned this whole floor houses banks of Honeywell reel to reel computers. Behind the main room, a smaller office, about 18 feet square, where the reels of computer tape are stored. The machines are carefully tended by young, white-coated Palestinians, most of whom have been trained in the U.S., Summit, MIT, and Harvard. Thus, thus says uh, Nathan Adams on the PLO. Well, uh, it was uh, the 11th of February, I think, where the news brought me a remarkable reminder of that. Some of you are guessing now what it is, seeing the color photos just released of Hamas data banks and computers in well-lit offices underground. Right below Gaza, immediately below the building operated by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Well, both anecdotes show terrorism can be big business. So what's my organization for today? We'll start there with a couple generalizations. Second, I'd like to go to the remarkable diversity of sources that these violent groups have. We'll do worldwide sort of look. Third, a couple of case studies, two nationalist groups that are really different and interesting and different from say the Salafist groups. Fourth, uh, we'll note some of the continuities that match the, the uh, currentest, the most current intelligence with some recent past uh, examples to show kind of continuities in the business and then end up with a couple of pointers, as the major said, um, with what states are doing to try to fight back. So those general observations then at the beginning, certainly terrorism can be really big business and the PLO and Hamas cases I've just shown with their computer banks uh, is, is a great illustration of what it takes just to track all the money these organizations. Hezbollah, uh, you know, there are lots of arguments about how much they get from Iran. It may have dropped a little bit recently because U.S. sanctions were pretty tough and that restricted some Iranian funds. Uh, my sources on this include a great mentor, Colonel Andrew Nick Pratt, USMC. Uh, he's passed, but he was a diplomat briefly in the Middle East, as well as a colleague in counterterrorism studies at the Marshall Center. And he told me too that Hezbollah's money stream from Iran is very much confirmed. Um, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda was big business. So Bin Laden, for example, gave bundles of cash to Taliban in the late nineties in Afghanistan. Uh, he gave bundles to a lot of other people Eventually, Al-Qaeda ran down its money reserves, and it actually lost money when it was operating in the Sudan, and it was expelled. Um, but Al-Qaeda started with big sums, and, uh, you know, and also they stretch. I mean, it's not like living in Tokyo to be in Sudan or Afghanistan. The money goes further. Um, Shinrikyo is the last uh, good example, you know, big business. Uh, the famous uh, perpetrator of sarin gas attacks in the Japanese subway, they were worth a billion dollars at one point, a billion bucks uh, when they conducted those operations at the end of the 90s. Um, they had money from all kinds of sources, including gifts from their members. Uh, they even sold computers out of a shop in New York City. They had very diverse assets. Well, 
uh, terror dollars really do stretch. This is another point uh, because terrorism doesn't have to be expensive. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. What's the latest strategy of these so-called jihadis? Use of bladed weapons, knives, hatchets, uh, axes. You can get a good knife anywhere for a few dollars. Um, this tactic has been widely advanced to readers of electronic magazines like Inspire, which used to cover this ground for Al-Qaeda. And then Al uh, ISIS comes in with its magazines Dabiq and Rumaya. And they have these fierce graphics with shining blades and blood dripping off the whole page of, of exhortations to attack civilians. Um, at the other end, of course, of the tactical spectrum, you'll have bigger things like big bombings, and, they, and those may cost some money. But it's a manageable expense, I think. Uh, one scholarly book has run down the cost for a number of the world's most infamous bombings, and it looks like this. 1993, the first World Trade Center, probably cost less than $19,000 to do. 2002, Bali, a massive truck bombing, eliminated a whole block of downtown Bali, probably cost less than 20K. 2004, the Madrid train station attacks, multiple trains coming into the station at once and blowing up maybe about 10K. 9-11 is rumored to cost maybe half a million dollars or well, well less, down to a third of a million. So it's quite possible to do terrorism on a budget if need be. It's also possible that the big sophisticated groups really do have large budgets and they do manage a lot of money. Well, that's sort of part one, getting us into the subject. Now, let me elaborate a little bit in two here on the diverse sources of these groups, because around the world, it, it differs a lot and it's, it's truly fascinating. And it's truly difficult for governments and private security and all to keep up. Um, extortion is a classic, naturally, a terrorism uh, combination of making money and using fear. Um, extortion, uh, it works in rural as well as uh, urban areas. There's a fine journal we get at Marine Corps University called Jane's Intelligence Review. And it described once how ETA, the Basque group in Spain, had a very sophisticated system for extracting money. Um, they targeted people for extortion based on their assets and they had, they had studied them first and then they turn up to make a very exacting request about what should be contributed, say, each month to the revolutionary cause. And these interchanges are kind of, uh, you know, dangerous and there's, there's threats that go unspoken uh, but both parties can also describe it as a gift to the movement if that's how they want it done. In Sri Lanka, the Tamil Tigers did this, and uh, they also act, were active in Canada, where there's a big Tamil diaspora. Uh, for years, they, were, they moved a lot of money. They had accountants, they had men with briefcases, they had bank accounts set up, couriers to bring the cash back to Sri Lanka. Uh, the Tamils in Canada have done well. Many of them contributed because they wanted to, some probably because they were extorted, but they sent money back to the old country. Uh, and this was all tracked thoroughly by a, a very good Canadian reporter at one point. He did a book called Cold Terror. Um, the, the Tigers had other sources. 
equally interesting. So they governed parts of their Tamil homeland in Sri Lanka. So they charged uh, what taxes they wanted. They would require visas, for example, for somebody to go visit in Canada and, and come back home. Uh, they sold propaganda videos, newspapers. Their legitimate businesses included a fruit canning company in Malaysia. They had a, a genius in logistics actually named KP for short, and he was worldwide in his operations and he made this movement rich. He was really very skillful. India also provided some money to the Tamil Tigers. Well, kidnapping is a terrorist classic, isn't it? So. We remember with movies like State of Siege and so forth, the Latin guerrilla groups like the Tupamaros of Uruguay, uh, they really emerge about 1969-70 as very much players in the market for kidnapping for political purposes. Um, they made some payoffs that were staggering, uh, that received from, from big corporations uh, for, for taking executives and demanding uh, money to be to be paid, given given life back. Um, uh, later on, say 2000, probably the world's premier kidnapper was Abu Sayyaf, the organization in the Southwest Philippines uh, that was also allied with Al Qaeda. They've kind of gone quiet now because the Filipinos have done them a lot of damage. Um, but there's always a market for this. Uh, and one of the latest was in Northern Africa uh, some of the Salafist groups there have been, have been grabbing Europeans, priests, aid workers, travelers, and then demanding big sums to give them back. Uh, counterfeiting is uh, most unusual. It's not the most normal uh, terrorist financing method, but it's interesting. We've seen North Korea in this game. Uh, Hezbollah and Iran collaborated to uh, uh, use the fake of the American $100 bill. These were so good, the Secret Service guys called them super notes. I got to talk to a retiree once about how this worked. Um, these were circulated internationally and cashed in. They made a lot of money for, for Hezbollah. Um, and and uh, counterfeiting has is, is been tried by others. There was a failure at it by a group called The Order, a right-wing group in the Pacific Northwest in America, um, neo-Nazi types. And they did a pretty good job laundering and you know, rather making a fake uh, $10 bills. But then they tried to move them and it didn't work in the local market because they used a fool of a member for a courier. And as he tried to distribute this money around and get it exchanged, uh, he was caught like on day two by an alert clerk in a store. Um, by the way, counterterrorism does demand good, good smarts from uh, other citizens. And in this case, uh, a good citizen in the store helped, helped uh, crack a case of counterfeiting. Narcotics is famous, right? Uh, a, a criminologist named Rachel Ehrenfeld documented this problem in 1990 in a very fine book called narco-terrorism. And then the State Department announced later uh, that as much as 40% of the groups that do terrorism internationally have some hand in the illegal drugs business. So it's big business. FARC was famous for this. 
there are a lot of uh, FARC members who are in jail in the United States right now. Um, when I wrote on this for the George C. Marshall Center in their publication in about 2010, what I learned from all my research was that the range of activities in narcotics itself is really broad. Um, these guys in the dirty business can can grow opium or hashish or care or cocaine. Uh, the terrorists can do that. They can tax the farmers that do it. Uh, they can tax at the harvest. They can skim off production at the main plants where all this is processed. Uh, they can run that whole production process themselves. It, it, they can apply fees, extract fees from from flyers who are who are taking small plane loads of this stuff out of the area or boatloads of it somewhere. Uh, they can do one or two of these things or all of these things, depending on what they what they want. The Taliban, for example, has been in real deep in, in Afghanistan in a range of these activities. But nothing's predictable. Some groups will deny that they want to do any dope business. Uh, it is amazing to consider that Taliban, which is an overtly religious organization, has just routinely done this for years. Um, I, I'd like to know how how they do how they hold that on their conscience. Uh, sure, it makes more money than growing cotton, uh, but how can you be a religio-political organization like Taliban and not sacrifice a lot of your legitimacy by being in that business? Uh, I'd like to know. Um, revolutionary taxes are, are common by insurgents that use terrorism, um, and so are taxes paid in food. After all, you know, being in the jungle uh, sounds like it may be a rich place to be, um, but uh, it turns out that despite all these verdant plants and animals, that actually living there is pretty hard, and plenty of gorillas have starved. Uh, and extracting food from a population locally is really important in a guerrilla war. And so some insurgents that rely upon terror uh, do extract it from a population in rural areas. Well, um, part three. So I thought I'd look quickly at a couple of short, very short case studies. Uh, so the first was introduced already, PLO. Um, the PLO was carrying big balances on complicated financial ledgers. They had lots of properties, lots of activities. Um, so where's all their money come from? Uh, it starts with that last point on taxation. Uh, James Adams, who, who studied this in the 80s, show that workers for the PLO, people in the movement, had their wages taxed often at the rate of about 5% by the organization. Uh, Yasser Arafat, by the way, controlled the money flow completely, which was one of the reasons he was at the center of power of this uh, secular nationalist Palestinian movement of the late 20th century. Um, another source they had was just well-meaning individuals. You know, people give uh, money to militant movements all the time out of the conscience and uh, desire to, to be helpful to people they believe in. Uh, Well-meaning individuals gave the PLO a lot of money. John Laffin documented this years ago, but the PLO also used to boast about it. They, they weren't shy. They liked to show how popular they were and talk about the gifts they got. 
Um, extortion from Palestinians that were less willing uh, is possible. Uh, many Palestinians were wealthy, were, are wealthy, are successful, and they can be tapped for, for money uh, with a, an, an implication about use of force. Um, other kinds of extortion were helpful. Arab states gave a lot to the PLO. Uh, sometimes it would be credits or materiel, but a lot of times it would be cash. And both the governments and the PLO sometimes talked about that. Uh, outside states, the, the communists were state subsidizers. Uh, I worked with a professor at the Naval War College one year who had defected from the Soviet Union. And he was a PhD. He had been a member of the International Department. And he was a foreign liaison to the guys like the PLO. And there were literally times when he would carry money overseas and, and pay off various big clients that they worked with in the Palestine Liberation Organization. Uh, they had legitimate business as well. Uh, one of their big corporations was called Samed, S-A-M-E-D. Samed had as many as 5,000 workers just in Lebanon as well as others in the region. It's a big enterprise, 35 factories in Lebanon, uh, industry, cinematography, propaganda, agriculture. You know, they had uh, big farms in places like Uganda, Congo Brazzaville, Guinea-Bissau, Somalia. Um, workers at Samed made everything from home furniture to candy. Um, one of my uh, Marine Corps friends uh, told me once, uh, he said, we were talking about Summit, and he said he'd been serving in the Middle East. He said, oh, yeah, I know their stores very well. He said, my wife bought her wedding dress from Summit. So legitimate business is often one of the ways terror groups do operate. And by the way, when you have a legitimate business address, it makes your logistics of a clandestine sort much easier. Well, let's turn to Europe. Uh, a very good example of big time finance for a nationalist group in Europe would be the classic IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Um, it's uh, fighting predecessors have had foreign aid many times. I mean, World War I, they got arms from Germany. And as any Bostonian or New Yorker would, would tell us, you know, IRA got a lot of money and arms from our big cities in the East Coast uh, during uh, the late 20th century before the famous Good Friday Agreement and, and other things kind of snuffed uh, IRA militancy. Uh, much of the transactions have, have, been, have been documented by a book uh, by Jack Holland called The American Connection. Uh, and there's another one, if you're interested in reading an interesting crime story called The Irish Assassins. The background on this goes way back a century plus. And, and in 1882, there was a knifing in Dublin, a couple of British civil servants. And that whole story's been retold now by Julie Cavanaugh. And that 1882 case of a double murder uh, by uh, early Irish militants, they predate the uh, formal IRA. Um, their money and some of their inspiration came from the United States. They also had a Paris man. They had a finance man operating in Paris uh, for that group, which called itself the Invincibles. So it's an old pattern. 
uh, in modern times, the the money flow was kind of formalized. So you had the foundation um, of something called the Northern Irish Relief Organization. Uh, and you also had groups that privately worked uh, through it or independently from it uh, to make money and send it eastward. Um, for example, one thing routinely done in the 80s and 90s, for example, was a celebrity dinner. So you'd have in the US, you know, you'd have in Chicago, New York, someplace, you'd have a big dinner with a couple of congressmen, perhaps. And some of the New York dinners would draw three, four, or five congressmen, maybe a senator. Uh, you'd have a great time, a good meal, uh, maybe an Irish orchestra, maybe a speaker who was a known gun runner or who'd been jailed but was let out and, and you know, he'd done his time and could now circulate conveniently in public but was still a hero. U.S. politicians love this kind of thing. They would attend. The IRA loved it naturally. Uh, and then you'd get coverage as in, say, the Irish People, which was an important city weekly in New York for a generation. The Irish people would cover this kind of gala and publicize all those who were involved in promoting the, the revolution or the cause of the Irish prisoners or whatever it was that at that point. Um, IRA had other sources. Uh, they include sale of merchandise like IRA symbols or books on history of Ireland, uh, this kind of thing, uh, pub receipts, gambling receipts, uh, extortion, uh, bank theft. They smuggled. Um, one of the most infamous operators was a fellow named Thomas Slab Murphy. He had a big farm that actually straddled the boundary of, of Northern and Southern Ireland. And he and his three brothers worked the farm and they moved livestock back and forth through there in very large amounts, uh, depending on circumstances, what the customs were, what the demand was in markets. Uh, they moved flocks in effect uh, and other, other things and, and back and forth across the border in, in ways that made uh, IRA money. One estimate, in fact, says that they made as much as a hundred and sixty-five thousand pounds sterling for the IRA each year. I mean, even if it was a third of that, it's a very substantial contribution to the coffers of the militant movement. Um, my favorite IRA story might be from Harper's Magazine years ago. They had a fellow document uh, this practice. Um, you you would see the movement. Uh, get jobs at a construction site in Ireland. So the organization would would use its influence or maybe muscles to get to get good jobs for for laborers, for electricians, for pipe fitters, whatever the the site needed. And as the construction went on, IRA could then tax the wages that these young men were earning. So it helped the it helped the men to employ them and helped the IRA to be able to tax them. Uh, and uh, the host company may or may not know all about this, but they're paying salaries, which are then being taxed. The, uh, the IRA would occasionally, according to Harper's, uh, put a bomb in a building um, if they were unhappy with circumstances or if they wanted to extend their work period. Uh, and then, in effect, uh, the reconstruction of this building uh, would also benefit the Irish Republican Army. 
Um, it was big business. I mean, at one point, an estimate that was pretty credible was that their budget for a year would be as much as, say, 4.5 million pounds sterling. Uh, that's that's serious business. And, of course, the British taxpayers are, and the Irish citizens are paying for all this. Uh, IRA damage to Britain was rumored to be at maybe 4 million pounds a day. So that's a very extensive price that a democracy can pay for one of these, these movements. Well, um, section four, uh, section four is, uh, I call kind of continuities and patterns. The treasury department has just published a brand new study. Uh, and it's called the 2024 National Terrorist Financing Risk Assessment. Uh, it's available on the web. And they have details that I think would interest any student in this field, like, for example, with Hezbollah, so the Lebanese proxy of Iran. Uh, it's involved in a multi-million dollar business here in the U.S. of artwork transactions. So this is a classic... Uh, Thing that can be legal or illegal. Uh, so diamond grinding services, artwork transactions. Uh, apparently Hezbollah is in deep here in the United States and Treasury is drawing our attention to that. It sounds pretty obscure, but I remember in my IRA work, they used to do thefts of paintings, for example, or artworks, and then try to sell them. Either sell them quickly on the black market or hold them over uh, for extortion to try to get money back for the return. Um, it's not easy to do. Uh, artwork theft was, of course, done widely by ISIS, and uh, Marine Corps lawyer Matthew Bogdanos made himself famous by a very impressive career trying to get back things that had been stolen out of Iraq by ISIS. Uh, Bogdano still works in this area in New York City now, working for our government. Um, so what else is in this new Treasury report? Uh, it says that uh, extremist groups do indeed engage in, in legit business. And it mentions something that seems like Mickey Mouse uh, literally selling T-shirts. How can that matter? It sounds pretty petty. But I was in Dublin in 2007 and I was in a Sinn Féin store. Uh, they used to be partner to IRA militants, and the Sinn Féin store was selling T-shirts, which celebrated IRA bombers and, and killers. Uh, one of them, I remember, mentioned was, was in honor of three men who'd gone to Colombia to teach bomb tactics to the FARC in Colombia. And uh, the shirt is openly boasting about this linkage abroad in uh, kind of uh, revolutionary internationalism. Um, Treasury's report gets into Somalia matters. Um, a member of Al-Shabaab uh, uh, called Ali Suleiman Matan, newly sanctioned by the U.S. government. What's he doing? He's running a fleet of ships, it says. A fleet of ships, no small thing. Uh, trafficking weapons and other materials and explosives uh, as from Yemen or to Yemen. Uh, and this recalls to me that that fellow I mentioned, KP, with the Tigers in Sri Lanka, because that logistician also had a whole fleet of cargo ships, which he worked worldwide uh, to move all the things that, that the Tamil Tigers needed. 
And last thing that struck me about the newest report here, this thing just out from Treasury, they're on to the subject of abusing charities and, and fraudulent charitable appeals. Well, of course, all you students of Al-Qaeda remember how massive was the misuse of charity. Uh, groups like the Holy Land Foundation with offices in Virginia, uh, Texas, that sort of thing. So uh, that is a kind of interesting series of linkages between the latest intel that's open source and uh, and what I used to study a decade or two or three back. Uh, fifth and last, so what can be done? Um, this is not easy, uh, but much is being done and it helps at least on the margins. Um, uh, this isn't an, a partisan issue. So, you know, uh, Democratic politicians uh, in the White House and Congress were very happy after Oklahoma City, 1995, to push through a new legislative package. Um, it was designed to suppress the material support to terrorism and to take other measures which would help domestically. And that material support law has been really important. If you look at who gets prosecuted and what in our country, very often the answer is it was on, on that basis. So uh, that's helpful. Um, the US government uh, does other things like help train foreign law enforcement. We have a whole network. I think there are six of these uh, international law enforcement academies, uh, Thailand, you know, Ghana, the one in Hungary alone has trained something like 24,000 graduates. So we try to help teach, you know, financial forensics as well as other kinds of law enforcement issues, security issues, and basically build this cadre internationally of CT people. So terrorism's international. We try to make sure CT is as well. Um, there are sanctions, of course, as you know, um, varieties of these travel bans, banking bans. We do a lot of this. More and more, it's individual, too. I think this, this started, especially in the uh, Iranian case, for example, with the Trump administration. We had, we had sanctioned groups or businesses, but they began sanctioning individuals, too, right, right down to the name. And so today, if you look on Treasury's uh, website, and the Office of Foreign Assets Control. They keep this long list of all kinds of people who've been individually sanctioned and can be picked up easier uh, in terms of travel uh, or watched more closely. Um, so there's that. There's the UN assistance in part. Um, they have a small office that tries to track people and do sanctions as well. Um, it's too small, it's too ineffectual, but. They've been trying at least since the end of the 90s to do some of this work. Um, Interpol is involved, you know, prior to the, the, the secretariatship of Ron Noble, who did two terms at Interpol uh, as general secretary, they really disdained terrorism work, but he got them into the business, which is wonderful, uh, of, of working against terrorism also. And so Interpol gets involved in these things, which previously they they disdained as too political, too too dangerous to touch in a way, uh, and they focus just on raw crime. But now they also do focus on on crime when when terrorists do it, and that's good for the intelligence picture and for international cooperation. Uh, so there's a lot of other things that are being done, and um, 
I would uh, I would conclude as, as, as follows that it's really hard to do this work well. Um, there are problems like say Hawala, the uh, paperless uh, flying money they they call it flying money they call the Hawala system for moving uh, moving money across borders. There's a lot of things like that, like digital currency that make this difficult. But there is some progress. There's new focus in this last generation, and and we're getting at some parts of terrorist finance. Uh, I don't ever overstate what we're doing, and I also don't overstate the role the money has. I'd never use this uh, phrase, um, you know, uh, about money being the lifeblood of terrorism. I don't believe that. I think political passion is the lifeblood of terrorism. Uh, but money is important. It is a factor. And it's one of those things we can do against a group. We can't probably strangle a group by depriving it of its money. We probably can't find all its money. Uh, but it's one of those the measures we take in a grand strategy approach to, to countering terrorism. Um, and with that, Major, I will uh, uh, go to you and any, any questions that uh, auditors may have or Discussion items, it doesn't have to be a question, but comments fine too. That's great, sir. I think, uh, you know, listening to your last comment about, you know, the passion and whether it's passion or money that is the key driver behind terrorism. You know, one of the questions that I wrote down is, you know, if somebody has a lot of money, you can tend to bring in uh, the types of uh, equipment and people that you would need. You know, I think in the, the world of sports, you know, People want to go play for the Yankees because they have a lot of money to throw around. Um, so I was wondering if there were different ways that these types of organizations sort of uh, show off their money almost as a recruiting. You know, I think recently with the Houthis and their F5 video, uh, you know, showing that hey, we have a working F5. Or are there ways that these organizations kind of I don't want to say flaunt, flaunt their money, but you know, use their money to help with recruiting? Uh, well, what I would say to that is they may not flaunt it, but they do uh, when they have it, they, they like they like using it. And so I've studied some groups that, that actually regularly salary a, a member. So if you can imagine going back to the beginning there with our headquarters building in Damascus at that time for PLO, you know, those guys all have families. They might have automobiles. They, they've got uh, problems to solve or, you know, they need, occasionally need a lawyer or a dentist and, and you know, they're glad to have a salary. Uh, the PLO was a systematic uh, and successful business model and it, it, it paid those guys on a regular basis. Um, similarly, we know that, that groups like Hezbollah frequently have regular salary kind of things for fighters or such, uh, you know, activists of various kinds. So we hear a lot about, you know, things like uh, Hezbollah's uh, uh, medical aid or their social services. Um, and that's true. That's true. And that buys a lot of friends. But uh, salaries are useful, too. And, and many, many terrorists are are well paid. Um, others have have less uh, clear financial systems, and it may turn a lot on, you know, how well the latest bank robbery worked out. Uh, and it may not be quite so formal. But being able to control the money in the in one of these organizations is is a great advantage. Uh, it's a form of political control, as well as uh, as you say, being able to recruit, being able to recruit. Yeah, I think that kind of goes. You know, when you were talking about ways they were bringing in money, 
you know, the vast majority of those ways seemed uh, illegal between drugs, other criminal activity. Um, but you did mention that there were, you know, legal ways that they were obtaining money and that did make logistics easier. Were there, are there other things that having legal fronts, you know, help these organizations? I, I would imagine that the biggest drawback would just be the, you know, the governments have an ability to freeze assets from legal companies in a, in a much easier fashion than they might with illegal means. You uh, bet, you bet. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about that, that your question raises for me is the state airline, for example. Many states have, have formal, formal ownership over an airline. Um, so Afghanistan did under Taliban, for example, probably, probably does now. Uh, in the Cold War days, uh, the state airline in a place like Bulgaria or the Soviet Union, Aeroflot, was in a, in a marvelous position to move money, move couriers uh, who would land and then and then go go away on the ground with their satchels, um, or move goods uh, that could be sold illegally, like drugs. So, uh, uh, I once studied for some time a major corporation that was based in Sofia, Bulgaria. Uh, there were congressional hearings about it and such, and they moved all kinds of. Of, of profitable stuff, uh, some illegal, some legal. Weapons to the Middle East and drugs from the Middle East into Europe were two of the most common. Bulgaria was in a nice position geopolitically to, to do that, to be the link between the Middle East and Western Europe where the money was. And so state, uh, a, a state trucking firm, for example, or a state airline could move that stuff clandestinely. Yeah. It was uh, it was easier in Europe for the system that they used to encourage trade uh, that was called the TIR network, where you'd basically be able to seal your truck at the point of de of, uh, of of departure and then not have it opened by inspectors until it arrived, maybe four or five countries away, and that reduced the chance of successful inspection. So those kinds of regular commercial systems can really help a terrorist group. Uh, you know, you need an open front maybe to do advertising. So you have a company and that can be a, a front that actually moves material, but also serves as a recruiting or a pay, pay, paymaster station for your Intel guys in that country. Um, it gives you a legitimate address so you can hire a lawyer and a secretary and you can have accounts with the phone system and you can suffer inspections from local government and you've got this commercial pattern that that's legit. But meanwhile, the real the serious stuff is being done somewhere in back rooms. Um, if it all makes us think of organized crime, which keeps a foot in both legal and illegal business, well, that's probably a good parallel. And I'm actually going to skip a couple questions into the ones that have been asked in the chat because I think the the response to that question kind of feeds right into this next one. So Toby asks, um, is there similarities or case studies between organized criminal groups and terrorist groups on financing? As he's aware, uh, some criminal groups will pay to put trusted individuals through schools to become useful, such as accountants or lawyers. Um, you had mentioned earlier where the PLO was using U.S. trained staff on their IT. Uh, did they pay for their studies or just recruit them? 
the latter I'm not sure about, and it's not reported uh, in the in the book by James Adams called "The Financing of Terrorism." So I, can, I it's an it's a nice question, but a narrow one that that I can't speak to. Um, but it is um, uh, uh, the the first part of your question. Um, I could certainly confirm they they do recruit. They do recruit talent. They recruit it based on education. Uh, they recruit it based on revolutionary passion, but also just skills. Uh, and they need they need these skills to make an organization work. Um, it's um, it's impressive when you look at something like, say, the LTTE Tigers, just how many kinds of people they needed. So, for example, young women in large numbers worked in their media operations. So if you have a 16 or 18 year old girl and it helps if she's pretty and she goes gives talks at say a high school gymnasium because a sympathetic teacher lets her in to talk about maybe Tamil issues. Uh, she could be quite interesting to a lot of the young boys in there. And when you when you get them out to a camp and, and show them impressive charismatic leaders and give them a pistol to practice with and run them through gymnastics and and faux martial exercises, you can you can make yourself look pretty attractive to a bored uh, young male. Um, so that kind of recruiting went on. They had a, a Australian woman who wrote a manual for the girls to help them join and help them shape up in terms of political views and uh, accustoming uh, themselves to to Tamil militant life. Um, naturally, you would need doctors, uh, you need uh, drivers, you need weapons experts, uh, and, and people uh, have to be trained on all these kind of skill sets. Um, in the Tamil case, uh, they had the advantage of safe havens in Tamil Nadu, which is a southern state in India proper. They had a good entree with local governments and with local aid organizations and such. And it was overtly known that they were the Indians were helping these Tamil militants in the 85, 86, 87 period before things went badly for it. Um, so a lot of the skill sets were available and they, they protected these training areas. They provided the equipment, the construction stuff, the the, uh, uh, you know, the supply people, the medical equipment that was needed for these movements. Uh, of course, once you get into the field, you have very high demands in medicine. So people trained in field medicine are very valuable. And uh, when you've got a bad case, maybe a guy lost a leg in a in a guerrilla fight, uh, he could be transported north from the island across in the across the Polk Strait into into India proper and do long service medical care there. This was a something that the East Germans, to offer another example, used to do for Africans. Uh, the big fights in Mozambique and Angola and such in the Cold War uh, could see evacuation of bad casualties off into, say, Berlin to a nice hospital. So all of that uh, is, a, is a great way to support a militant organization. Um, and it may not involve any shooting on the part of the donor. So it's kind of convenient morally. And I think uh, well, we got one more question it's kind of on the same vein between organized crime and, and terrorists. So uh, Toby uh, asked, uh, what's the current state of play between terrorist organizations and criminal organizations? Uh, he was saying that 
you know, there might be some hesitancy between terrorist organizations engaging with them, with the criminal organizations due to the potential weakness, uh, since, you know, those criminal organizations have the potential uh, to be exploited by law enforcement. Yes. Um, well, I, I like the subject and uh, Toby would be interested if you, if you get on the National Defense University website, you can find two books uh, with under the title called Convergence. Convergence and the authors include people like uh, Selena Realu, who's a wonderful friend of mine, uh, R-E-A-L-U-Y-O. Selena Realu is an expert on this question in the Latin world. Uh, and, and the books on convergence, one's convergence, one's beyond convergence, um, get in deep on this question. And there's a great deal of integration between the political groups and the organized crime groups. And, and it's true that, that the, the crime groups are attracting a lot of attention when they get in this kind of nexus. It's also true that the terrorist groups are getting a certain amount of shame that's associated with naked, aggressive crime because they kind of sully their moral picture uh, when they get involved. So, you know, you may think that you're a wonderful, idealistic nationalist group, but if it turns out you're running bordellos and selling cocaine, you know, this could harm your relations considerably with elders in the community or something. So you do pay a price. On the other hand, this is not new. Beware the scholar telling you that this grow, there's a growing pattern of a nexus between organized crime or illegal crime and terrorism. It's been with us forever. It's very old. So I, I, I pointed out how, how far back that, that first great book goes to 86. And I mentioned the book on narco-terrorism in 1990. That, that's kind of a long time ago. These people know how this is done. So it's really variance on themes. It's not revolutionary. Um, and it waxes and wanes uh, depending on, on particular groups. And I think, uh, so you mentioned the FARC earlier and, and you mentioned them just now and their use of uh, cocaine to fund their operations. Uh, Albert asks, um, with Hezbollah's increasing use of uh, captagon smuggling for re revenue generation in the Middle East, uh, is there any comparison that can be made? You know, what's the comparison between uh, drug smuggling out of the Middle East and you know what we saw coming out of uh, South America and cocaine in the in the 80s and early 90s? You know, it's um, a great question, Albert. When I when I think of Captagon, I, I think of articles for about ISIS more than Hezbollah. But but if we look at that 1990 book by Rachel Ehrenfeld, there is a chapter on Hezbollah. Uh, it predates big time meth dealing uh, and, and it has to do with uh, hashish and other drugs, uh, first class marijuana, so forth. Hezbollah has been in this a long time. I have no doubt that they're, you know, that they're moving Captagon and maybe you've seen some stories. ISIS made the papers in the Middle East and other places for this. Um, the difference with the South might be that I don't know many accounts of the FARC and ELN guerrillas in Colombia, for example, actually using the stuff. I'm sure most of the groups uh, discouraged the use, but the fighters, because it's meth uh, related and amphetamines, uh, the fighters do use it. 
and uh, and so in the Middle East, there's a lot of consumption by members as well as movement of it for sale, and it is a huge business. It's a huge business. The um, here's a, here's some numbers. This is this is how shocking it can be. So uh, I don't have numbers on on ISIS income, but they made so much with so many methods, including smuggling oil. Uh, for which our Turkish allies uh, have a have a real responsibility for that period, I'm afraid. Uh, they made so money, much money that they gradually began discussing creating their own currency. Remember that they aren't just a transient group. They're a, a new homeland for the latest caliphate. And they published in their magazines, which I used to study, uh, pictures of what the new currency and several kinds of metals would look like. We eventually did a wonderful thing, which was just bomb their central bank and spread their assets all over the acreage, including the the, the currency which would which could burn in a bombing. Um, that was a, a splendid thing that was done in CT of a financial order. Very unusual move, but it, it was effective. Uh, FARC money was as great as 400 and 500 million a year in income, most of it from dope, some of it from extortion, uh, cattle rustling, uh, working guys who worked in mines to steal from mines or to uh, result in extortion payoffs by mine owners, uh, regular political kidnapping. So, so um, half a billion dollars in a budget for FARC at its height, when that was not long ago, was a, was not surprising. Imagine that kind of income and the kind of infrastructure you can support with that and the kind of money you can put into intelligence or weapons acquisitions. Uh, ELN is far smaller, but since FARC went into the peace process, ELN is now uh, able to inherit some of that old business. And so I'm sure ELN's been growing a bit. In fact, one of my Marine friends was going down there and he was going to study FARC and I advised him to study ELN instead because it was the coming thing. And he did so. Uh, ELN's very important, although it gets none of our attention. Taliban numbers. When I was at Quantico as a chair, a book came out from a woman named Gretchen Peters. And the Peters account in a book called Seeds of Terror was about the opium and Taliban. And her story, uh, and she was pleased with her own work and she's telling her own story, had to do with pressing for years on intel sources and NATO spokesmen and uh, social workers and others to understand just how big Taliban's dope business was. They estimated it a couple of tens of million or something. She kept saying, no, no, it, it's massive. She says that she won a accord after a while, that, that NATO ramped up considerably its estimates of Taliban's drug business because of her work and closer attention to the problem. And it was massive. And she says that, that there's three, four, five, you know, three, four hundred million a year in Taliban dope money by the end of her reporting cycle, which was about 2010, 2011. I was there thanks to the Marine Corps University Foundation. Um, uh, I got to go in 2006. And one of the things I did was meet with a man named Lane, a, a general 
who was British, and he'd actually been a faculty member at the uh, at the command and staff college where I was a professor. And so uh, I got to meet uh, General Lane again. He was a two star and he was in charge of allied work against the drug business. And he had a world of trouble because they were still growing it. They had stored massive amounts of it. They had exported massive amounts of it. And he could not really see how the coalition could suppress the trade. And of course, when you do it, you're hurting small farmers. And so it can be quite unpopular. So Roger Lane uh, uh, really had his troubles trying to be a good man in the Afghanistan world in that case. Great. Uh, thank you so much, sir. I, you know, we're coming up on our, our traditional hour, so I just wanted to, to give you an, an opportunity for any uh, closing comments you might have. Only one is thanks to the, uh, the Brute Krulak Center. Uh, love working with you guys. Keep up the good work. Take care. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll have to get you a, a new mug with the new name on it. So, uh, Dr. Harmon, thank you for your time and your insight. And uh, thanks to all the folks who joined us today in the chat. That's all we have for today's episode. So go ahead and carry out the plan of the day. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Krulak community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.